Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Failing U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Failing U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, I spoke to Professor Mary Caldor, who is Professor Emeritus of Global Governance and Director of the Conflict Research Program at LSE. Professor Caldor has pioneered new conceptions when it comes to thinking about war and conflict, and her work on human security has influenced national governments. She's the author of New and Old Wars, Organized Violence in a Global Era, published in 2012. Professor Caldor joined us on June the 9th, 2022, to discuss the future of European security. The Phelan Center's U.S. Projects graduate intern, Mohid Malik, also joined us to ask some questions. President Biden has taken a decidedly different approach to international politics and the liberal world order compared to his predecessor, President Trump. Is America now really back? I think it's partly back. I'm very happy with the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but I was very unhappy with Afghanistan. And I think that President Biden has been you know, there's been a sort of trajectory from the, his predecessor. He was actually following Trump's policies in Afghanistan, which had such a disastrous outcome. But more than that, I think like many Democrats and many on the left, there's a feeling that America has to withdraw from all its adventures. And I think he's quite wrong when he says that America shouldn't be doing nation building. I don't like the term nation building, but I think we need the U.S. as part of a U.N. that really does help to do crisis management in very many places. There's one other thing which I think is really appalling, which is the continued drone campaign. And that's something that increased hugely under Obama Much as a result of Biden's own influence, Biden thought bombing terrorists was a way of withdrawing troops. And I just think this is really undermining international law and human rights. In a recent LSE blog post, you called for a rethinking of Europe's security arrangements along the lines of the Helsinki Accords rather than uh, NATO. How would the US fit with such a rearrangement? Weirdly, I think it's actually beginning to happen. There's a lot of changes going on inside NATO as a response to the invasion of Ukraine. I think particularly the Europeans have begun to realize that the way NATO was organized before on the model of the Cold War, which itself was on the model of World War II, simply doesn't work any longer. And in fact, it's very dangerous. And you can't envisage defending Europe by threatening the lives of millions of civilians. And so there is a really profound rethink going on at the moment. But it's a rethink that follows a European trajectory, the ways that the European Union has thought about its defense and security policy. And I think the US is actually being pulled along. I think there's a shift of balance within NATO between the Europeans and the Americans. And I think the addition of Finland and Sweden will make that stronger. So I think NATO is changing. Of course, if we're going to talk about a Helsinki process, eventually it would have to include Russia and it would be about democratizing Russia. 
So I think it's something broader than just changes. But I think at the end of the Cold War, we hoped that, I hoped that NATO would be dissolved like the Warsaw Pact and Europe would instead have a Helsinki uh, pan-European security system based on a combination of peace and human rights and economic and social cooperation. That didn't happen. And I think it's a great tragedy it didn't happen. But I always thought at the time that NATO could have adjusted to become the military arm of such a Helsinki process. But it always would have required a big shift in military posture. And that speaks to the problem of the American military-industrial complex and the fact that it continues to put pressure it continues to want to produce these very grand, ambitious weapon systems, whereas I think what you need is a very different military posture that's aimed at being defensive and protecting civilians. How much is the future of European security linked to the existence and potential expansion of NATO? Could a new security order even come about while Vladimir Putin remains president of Russia? Well, I sort of answered that a little Mm. bit. I think that NATO can adapt to a different posture, and I think it's beginning to do so. I think you'll see that the new strategic concept will include human security and will pay much more attention to international law, which I think is a very welcome development. That partly comes out of Afghanistan, the realization that collateral damage is impossible if you're trying to do crisis management. So I think we can sort of move in that direction. But obviously, the war in Ukraine will never end unless something changes inside Russia. And I think what that points to is that security is more than just a set of arrangements about the military. It must involve civil society. Then we need to be reaching out to civil society inside Russia. That's incredibly important, and we should be beginning at least to think of a, if you like, a sort of security system from below. Can I just ask a a quick side question to that? I think the idea of, I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on reaching out to civil society in Russia from the US or elsewhere. Well, I think most of the reaching out has to be done by ordinary people, but there's an awful lot that can be done at the moment. There is actually a lot of anti war activity inside Russia. And particularly important is reluctant soldiers and conscientious objectors. There are literally hundreds of soldiers who've been in Ukraine and do not want to return and want to resign from the military service. They have that right in the Russian constitution. There are also hundreds of conscientious objectors and the Russian constitution specifies not just that you can be a conscientious objector and against war in general, but you can choose to be a conscientious objector because you oppose a specific war. So what is needed at the moment is lots and lots of legal help to these guys and training of paralegals and money to do that. So that's one very sort of concrete way, but also drawing attention There are lots of small groups, local groups. There are lots of individual artists, individual intellectuals, individual journalists making statements. So that's part of what can be done. 
I think what can be done at a governmental level is designing strategies so that they help civil society rather than hinder. And I'm thinking particularly of the sanctions strategy because I think the problem with the sanctions is I would like to emphasize that I think you had to do it and you had to do it quickly to show your outrage. But at the same time, my fear is that the oligarchs have all sorts of clever ways to avoid sanctions, even when they're targeted. You know, the money gets passed to their sons. And if you've been watching Servant of the People, it gives you quite a good guide to all that. At the same time, things like cutting off access to Visa cards or MasterCards and closing airspace really affects the middle classes. And the middle classes are the people who will leave. What's left are ordinary people who are also going to be very much affected by it, but they're the ones who are really vulnerable to state propaganda, and they're the ones who are likely to say this is all the West's fault, and it's likely to exacerbate all that. And actually, if you look at what sanctions have done in other places, Venezuela, Syria, Iraq, in all of these cases, what it's really contributed to is fragmentation and criminalization and actually strengthened the elite. So I think that's very worrying and I think there needs to be an effort to redesign the sanctions. I'm strongly in favor of sanctions on oil and gas and I've been in favor of it for a very long time, not only because of climate change, I think we should have done it anyway, but also because it's oil and gas that is the basis of rich dictators like Putin. So I think what we ought to be doing is somehow finding a conditional way to lift the sanctions on ordinary people in exchange for, say, ceasefires in Ukraine. We ought to be banning all oil and gas exports, and we ought to be putting much more effort into legal cases against the oligarchs because that's the only way that I think you can address corruption. The Biden administration has provided a great deal of military assistance to Ukraine following Russia's invasion as part of its $40 billion aid package. Is it also doing enough to tackle the humanitarian situation unfolding in Ukraine? You know, what's fascinating about Ukraine at the moment, it's like a civil society state. Everybody's mobilized in the war effort. They had the Orange Revolution, they had the Maidan. I was there in 2015 and I've never been in a country with such an active civil society. What people said to me is, we still haven't managed to change our politicians, so we have to change our society ourselves. And so there's a huge effort going on to preserve the social infrastructure, to preserve schools, hospitals, and all of that kind of thing. And obviously, humanitarian assistance is incredibly important, but more important is just helping the economy. We've been working with Ukrainian economists who estimated back in April, I don't know what their latest, that the losses were already in terms of physical destruction was already around $600 billion, which is three times the size of Ukraine's GDP. And... um, You know, there are all sorts of problems relating to, we know, getting the grain out, exporting, keeping the economy going, all that's incredibly important. 
So my view is economic assistance is hugely important, but whether it has to be humanitarian assistance, I'm not sure. I actually think what we should do is to cancel Ukraine's debt. That would be the simplest thing. It has a huge debt. And, you know, at this moment, well, that would be the simplest way forward. But I think there are all sorts of other things that we could do, like insuring farmers so they plant their crops, even if their crops are going to be destroyed or not be able to be exported. How does the conflict in Ukraine fit into your new wars framework? Well, actually, I've suggested some of it. I think the Russian side is absolutely typical of my new wars framework. It's a regime that is, consists of oligarchy framed in ethnic nationalist terms. Actually, Putin has been fighting new wars ever since he came to power. He started with Chechnya, then Georgia, then Syria, and now Ukraine. And actually, Ukraine began in 2014. And Ukraine was out of the new war playbook. Actually, the Russians have a term for new wars. They call it nonlinear war. And they say it's really easy to destabilize a country using a combination of special forces, what they call political technology, and mobilizing internal dissent. And they absolutely did this in eastern Ukraine. They tried to do it throughout the whole of the south, but they failed. And it was really a response to the Maidan demonstrations. It was really a fear that successful democracy in Ukraine would also spread to Russia. And actually, that's how all of these wars began. The Yugoslav wars began with democratic demands. What these corrupt guys do is they channel democratic dissent into ethnic tension. And that's what Putin has been trying to do. And essentially, the invasion is yet a new stage in this process. So I think on the Russian side, it fits a new war. But the Ukrainian side is very different. I often talk, when I talk about new wars, I say the best, best countervailing power is what I call civicness. Very often the people who participate in demonstrations, they don't want to become violent. In fact, the people who become violent are very different. They're usually unemployed young men from the countryside. They turn themselves into civil society. They become the humanitarian first responders. They do local mediation. They document war crimes. And I think these wars are an attack on civility. They're against civicness. But the more you can promote it, especially at local levels, the more you can try to reverse the new wars. The interesting thing about Ukraine is that you have civil society totally backing the state. So you have essentially a civic state. And you can also say that in terms of the concept of Ukraine, which is a political concept, which was born actually in the Maidan, the idea that Ukraine combines Russians, Ukrainians, Poles, Jews, Crimean Tatars. My worry is, how does it all end? And one, if it escalates, there's a real risk of World War III and annihilation. If it doesn't, it's going to end in this long attritional struggle in the Donbass. 
And how much can the sort of civic state of Ukraine be sustained in this situation? How much will hatred of Russia get transformed into hatred of ethnic Russians? Is that a possibility? And also, you know, all of these citizens have been armed. If the economic situation gets much worse, you will see looting and criminal activities. So the real risk is that this civic courage that the Ukrainians are displaying could disintegrate if this goes on for a very long time. And that would be incredibly dangerous for Europe and everybody else. Your previous work looks at how solutions to new wars must be those which empower local civil society groups, which is what we've been discussing. Is this approach part of the solution to the conflict in Ukraine and maybe thinking about linkages with Europe, with the US? Well, yeah, I've, I've sort of answered it. I think we have to do everything we can to support this civic spirit. And that's why the economic aid is so hugely important, along with the military aid, of course. But key is providing sufficient economic aid for the Ukrainians and the sort of thing that we're doing here at LSE. I mean, supporting Ukrainian researchers inside Ukraine. That kind of thing is really important. But also, of course, the only way this is going to end is if there is civic success inside Russia. And that brings me back to what I was saying earlier. That's why I'm focusing on Russian anti-war activism, because I just think in the end, it's only democratization in Russia that will bring an end to this war. I really liked what you were talking about when you mentioned security from below. I think mm -hmm. that's very interesting. And in a way, it reminded me a little bit about the concept of ontological security. I was wondering if we were to look at this conflict from that lens, this idea of deriving your security from your sense in the world, do you not feel that part of the problem is the ability for Russia, for Putin, I guess I should say more specifically, to say that it's NATO's expansion which has caused us to feel insecure and because of this insecurity we're going to act in this way. You know, I, mean, I know that's a very sort of easy excuse for President Putin to fall on, but don't you think that, that there's some sort of legitimacy in that feeling of insecurity perhaps? Oh, completely. I think that NATO expansion was a terrible mistake. And NATO was a war-fighting machine. It grew out of the Cold War and it grew out of World War II. And it was objectively a threat to Russia. I don't think that explains Putin's behavior, but it did provide him with a pretext. What I think is that if we start talking about, I like the idea of ontological security, there needs to be a real shift in NATO's posture. And actually, I've been involved in discussions on the new strategic concept, and they're very keen on human security, by which they mean protection of civilians, protection of cultural heritage, women, peace and security. But I keep trying to say this is not something that goes alongside military operations. It's the overall objective. One way of thinking about it is that if you think about war fighting, under international humanitarian law, you are allowed to kill civilians if it's necessary for the military objective. If you were going to take a human security approach or an ontological security approach, it would be exactly the other way around. You would say you're only allowed to kill competence 
if it's necessary to protect civilians. And I think to some degree you can say that is what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. It is a defensive approach. It is focused on protecting Ukrainian civilians. And actually the West is being very careful about not escalating. But I think it does require a real rethink of NATO's overall posture. In the 1980s, when people like me were very much opposed to nuclear weapons, we talked about defensive deterrence as opposed to deterrence by retaliation. At the moment, the idea is if Russia invades, we send a few nuclear weapons over there. That's NATO's strategy, which is a recipe for a third world war. And actually, it's not really credible, because would we really do that? I don't think we would. And Putin knows that. So, But what's much more credible is that NATO members would resist in the way Ukrainians have resisted. And that, I think, is a real deterrent. I think it was only Putin's hubris and ignorance that made him invade Ukraine. I certainly thought he wouldn't because I was quite convinced that Ukraine would offer up a very strong resistance. Why he did, I don't know, because I didn't know anything that he didn't know. Thanks so much for speaking uh, to the ballpark this afternoon, Professor Mary Caldor. It's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Caldor is Professor Emeritus of Global Governance and Director of the Conflict Research Program at LSE. Professor Caldor spoke at the Phelan U.S. Center event, The Future of the Liberal World Order, on Thursday the 9th of June, 2022. You can find a podcast of the event at lse.ac.uk forward slash united hyphen states forward slash events. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks so much to Professor Mary Caldor for joining us in this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Mohid Malik. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.